Would you like to live a happier, healthier, and more fulfilled life? Cultures from all over our planet have been addressing that concern for thousands of years, and their answers can help you in your life today. Welcome to The Sweet Spot, where healing, spirituality, and culture meet. Join anthropologist and healer Robert Better as he introduces you to healing and spirituality in world cultures. Here's the host of your show, Robert Better. Hi, everybody. It's Bob Vetter here. Before we get started, and just in case you have to get off this podcast early, if you'd like to get underway with your own healing and clear away any energetic blockages, you can get on a free call with me. Go to HealWithBob.com. Welcome, everybody, in my podcast listening audience. Today, I'm with Richard Groves. Richard Groves and his late wife, Mary, founded the Sacred Art of Living Institute in Bend, Oregon in 1997. Richard spent more than 30 years as a healthcare educator and hospice chaplain. He is an an internationally popular teacher and author who offers educational programs for businesses and healthcare institutions worldwide. Richard speaks nine languages, was ordained a Catholic priest, and has earned graduate degrees in philosophy, world religions, counseling, and law. He is the co-author of the American Book of Living and Dying, Lessons in Healing Spiritual Pain, which is now in its third printing and has also been translated into many languages. Richard's most recent work is called The Soul and Science for Caregivers, a first-of-its-kind online university for professional and lay caregivers. Richard is most proud of his family that includes three sons, four grandchildren, and five great-grandchildren. Richard Groves, welcome to the show. Thank you, Bob. Good to be here. Well, we have some sense of your life from that bio, but now we're going to get a, have a chance to fill it out a little bit, flesh it out with some details. So I'll ask you to take us through your personal journey that brought you to these particular ways of healing. So Richard, take it away. Take us on a journey through your life. All right. Well, then, I guess in, in uh, big strokes, I would just say that as long as I have memory or recollection, there was something in me that felt attracted to um, the work of spirituality, the work of healing. Um, the world I grew up in, in the 1950s, in a, in a very ethnic uh, uh, part of the Midwest, uh, Polish Catholic neighborhood, uh, that manifested by going to seminary and uh, eventually being ordained a Catholic priest. And that was uh, the path that was available to me at that time. That was the world I knew. Uh, what I found was uh, early on in that work, in that ministry, is that my own heart and, and curiosity uh, was very um, respectful of the tradition I was trained in but also um, was curious about, um, I would say today, they call it comparative world religions. So the studies that were going on, uh, some of the early mentors, uh, people like Joseph Campbell and Houston Smith were big influences in my life. And I was just interested in seeing how some of the language and the tools from my tradition had parallels in other global traditions as well. 
And I also found myself increasingly attracted less to work that was speculative or philosophical and more interested in hands-on work, hands-on healing. So that uh, uh, I was curious about what it was that, that seemed to bring relief of suffering to people. Uh, I became, I would say early on, a student of suffering. And probably that's because I, I was curious about my own suffering. And I didn't find a lot of places where there were names for that. I didn't find even in psychological language, <clears throat> Uh, diagnoses of, of suffering or spiritual pain or soul pain. And so um, in the years that I was working in places like men's prisons, uh, volunteer uh, uh, chaplain with Air Force, uh, uh, especially with men in those days that were coming back from Vietnam, I'm 70 years old, so people in that generation, I, I found there was massive suffering that sometimes the traditional religious language didn't necessarily seem to adequately address for people. And so I was interested in seeing how I could listen to a person's story and build a bridge between their language, their understanding of soul, of spirit, and whatever healing uh, maybe they hadn't uh, had a chance to, to access. And uh, so that was kind of a bit of the exploration. And then uh, years later, uh, when I was no longer working uh, in a formal way in the Catholic Church, uh, my wife and I uh, both uh, were passionately involved in hospice work for quite a number of years. And uh, my wife in the area of bereavement, and I was in the area of uh, bedside practice. And we saw time and time again that among the doctors and nurses and social workers and chaplains who were being called to this work 30 years ago, there wasn't any course training uh, for dealing with, with this whole area of, of soul pain and spiritual suffering. And so it set us searching uh, and eventually creating a, a program and writing a book called The Sacred Art of Living and Dying. Um, we took a sabbatical year and uh, one of the great mentors in our life was uh, uh, Dr. Cecily Saunders <clears throat> back in 1967 in London, she founded St. Christopher's Hospice, which was really the first modern hospice. And uh, she was a passionate woman and she was a Renaissance woman. She was also interested in all of these same topics. And she encouraged Mary and I to, um, to check out uh, a Western European tradition that I had heard of but didn't know much about called the Ars Moriendi uh, in Latin, <clears throat> the sacred art of dying. And uh, so during that sabbatical year, we spent time in uh, 11th century libraries and hospices and monasteries, uh, going back to manuscripts from that period of time and found that in the 11th century, a thousand years ago, there was in fact in the West, a practice maybe similar to what you would find in other healing traditions around the world that eventually went defunct in the West. But for several hundred years, um, what was a brilliant um, tradition. And so the more uh, we studied it, uh, I'm a classical language scholar. So for me, I was, I was um, interested in the, uh, the original sources and the texts. The deeper I went with it, some of the tools and practices I found there 
were the ones that were starting to show up um, in the West that people were calling new age, <laughs> things like visualization and energy work. And in fact, all of that stuff was back there a thousand years ago. Um, and the healers of that time were trained in those traditions. And uh, so, you know, just like I suppose most people in this work, you don't uh, really help others unless you access the wisdom of that for yourself. It was my own uh, struggles, my own pain, my own searching, my own suffering that I began to, to work with very intimately with these, with these same tools and perspectives. And I found uh, much comfort there. And uh, probably the, the greatest uh, time of suffering was my wife's death, my wife's passing and now uh, more than 10 years ago. Uh, here, you know, being in the business of death and dying, you'd think you'd be able to be an expert in it. And it just blew me apart. I didn't have a personal way of walking through that grief and healing through it, um, that psychology alone, or even uh, my own faith tradition was necessarily giving me. So, so going deeper into this, uh, this uh, wisdom tradition, I began to find uh, some real solace. And uh, uh, I've been writing and, and teaching around that for a number of years, because a lot of people my age now have lost parents and spouses and children. And uh, grief is just another dimension of that, of that kind of soul pain. So, so I guess that's, that's the big picture. We eventually, uh, 25 years ago, my wife and I founded this institute called Sacred Art of Living, uh, located in Oregon. But really, our, our courses have been taught um, all over the world um, on five continents uh, to thousands, tens of thousands of students. And... Um, what I find is no matter where I go in the world, I, I can be in, in Thailand teaching this in a Buddhist monastery. I can be in a, um, a German uh, Catholic monastery. I can be in Ireland in a very different kind of a, a situation in, in, in a, a Celtic environment. And there's something about these tools and this wisdom that seems to have a universality about it. It seems to translate for people. So, so we started to create, create some tools and we started to engage with healthcare systems who would be willing to try on these tools and see if they could collect data to see if in fact their patients would benefit from some of what we were exploring. And um, what we ultimately created was this uh, sort of virtual encyclopedia online called the Soul and science of caregiving. And the whole point was to show that you, do, you really can validate some of this stuff. Uh, I think often people think that spirituality is in the realm of the unmeasurable. Well, I think you can measure the unmeasurable. I really think you can. I think you can show it before and after when you work with people around forgiveness work, for example. And so uh, we began to collect these data, and then we began to teach and train other teachers in different parts of the world who are working now in Japan and Ireland and, um, and every place in between. And uh, many of the teachers are former physicians, retired physicians, uh, retired uh, healthcare workers who sort of had a very fulfilling career but knew something was missing and found in this work something 
that gave them a second wind in life. And so I love those teachers because some of them are um, scientists and skeptics. You know, I'm not preaching to the choir when I'm talking to them. They're my canaries in the mine shaft. If it's too woo-woo sounding, you know, they'll be the first ones to let me know. But they really do consistently find something in the universal language that we're proposing um, valid and uh, for themselves and, and for the students who, who they're teaching. So I guess that's, that's the big picture story. What a great story, Richard. Um, I, I'd like to back up a little bit and talk about this discovery that you had about people in the 11th century and kind of, kind of describe that a little, if you would flesh that out for us a little bit, a little bit more. You know, you had this germ of an idea and then you, you went into these libraries and began researching. What, what did you come up with? Yeah. Uh, first of all, let me just kind of mention by way of, uh, uh, this might be of, of interest to your listeners, if, they, if you go to our website, which you might share, uh, there's an hour-long public broadcast video of the history of this that I did. So just so beautiful, if people would like more deep-end work on it. But, you know, I, I think what we found there was something very unusual for the 11th century. When I think of the Middle Ages, I think of a time of intolerance. I think of, as I say, the beginning of the Inquisition and book burning and, and uh, certainly anything but uh, interfaith tolerance. And what was amazing is that these hospices, as they came to call them, they were often housed in monasteries. Uh, they were the world's first sanctuaries. That meant that if you, were, um, if you were being chased there, or if you were an alien, if you were a foreigner, if you followed a different spiritual path, if you were Muslim or Jewish, if you got to this sanctuary, you were safe. No one was going to force you into, uh, into conversion or anything. And the people that worked in these hospices um, were more interested in the word that they used in Latin, which is interesting to me, was diagnosing spiritual pain. I had never seen that term used before outside of medicine. You, know, you think about diagnosing you know, a healthcare problem or maybe even a, a psychological problem. But they talked about the diagnosis of soul suffering. And that was just one of the ahas. I thought, now what, what was it they were talking about? I mean, all the years I was studied theology and I never heard any of that language at all. And what they looked for were universal patterns that no matter what age you were, what gender, what faith tradition, didn't matter what culture, that there was in the human soul, there were universal causes of suffering. Um, and so we began to pull those threads out and, and name them as four, uh, four pillars of the tradition. Meaning, so if you're in a state of meaninglessness, there's the suffering. Uh, forgiveness, if you're an intractable non-forgiveness towards yourself or another, and that's a cause of soul pain. Um, hopelessness. It's like the terminal illness of the soul. If you absolutely are without hope, there's no point in living. So hope and hopelessness, you know, two sides of the coin there. And then the fourth was called relatedness. Not relationship, but relatedness pain that very often 
what is most important to me that I'm in relationship to. It could be my job, could be my role in the world. It could be, I don't know, any identity that I have. If I'm divorced from that, disconnected from that, then that's a source of suffering too. So we created a tool to be able to open up what we call courageous questions with people to explore those four areas with their caregivers, whether they're family caregivers or, or professional caregivers. But going back to the 11th century, this is very remarkable. I, again, we're coming out of the dark ages. And uh, I thought, what was it that gave these people the insight uh, in a pretty narrow bandwidth world of education to open up into this area of exploration? And of course, that was the big question. And the answer to it was, was um, the solution that, uh, that helped me understand why this whole tradition developed in the first place because they had people coming here from all over the then known world. And uh, they had Buddhists and Jews and Muslims dying, especially in, in Southern Europe. And then the other thread that wove into this tradition that I don't think the Western Europeans would have ever come to themselves because the Greco-Roman worldview is very dualistic. Its philosophy tends to be very black and white. But one major contribution to this was uh, a thread that came from the Celtic lands. Um, and we know that these Celts were sort of outliers. They were there at the edge of, of Western civilization. The Romans were never able to, to conquer them. Uh, they were the Aboriginal peoples uh, of Europe. I'd say the only Aboriginal peoples that continued to, to exist after Romanization. And their healers, who they called Anamkara. It's an old Irish term that means soul friend. Their healers, some of their practices to me looked more like the things I found down in Mexico with the curanderas, the healers. I found uh, resonance with the Native American tradition of the Paiute people whose reservation are, is here in my area that uh, I've been associated with for, for 30 years. I found remarkable resonance. So a very non-Western approach to approaching human suffering. And these Celts, we talk about the Irish saving civilization. Literally they did. I mean, in the dark ages, everything went dark. The lights went out, there was no learning. But somehow uh, during those centuries, uh, some of these brilliant thinkers, teachers, philosophers, and healers eventually were hired, I mean, in the court of Charlemagne, you know, uh, he wanted his grandchildren to be educated. So we hired the Celts to come in and do it because there was nobody in Europe who could do it. Uh, they had this more holistic, I guess I would say, approach to understanding the soul. And their whole theology, their whole spirituality was so utterly different. Um, even when it became Christian, it developed ex uh, on a very, very different path than, uh, than continental uh, Western Christianity, which frankly picked up so much uh, of a Greco-Roman uh, philosophy and dualism. So there was something about it that was liberating. And I found that there was a way of sitting with a person, for example, who might have been very deeply um, um, 
brought up in, in their own religious tradition, the dominant religious tradition of Europe or North America. And you could talk about these tools not as something alien, but as something that they could match with their own experience. Um, so it wasn't uh, inimical to their own faith background. So that was, uh, that was just an aha. And, and to be honest, for, for now many, many years, I continue to search. And, to, and frankly, some of the phrases in these old books couldn't be translated because they're not Latin. They're old Irish. So I needed to find an old Irish, a Gaelic scholar uh, in the west of Ireland who knew the language, who would translate these things that just, uh, I thought, this is pure genius. I mean, some of them sound like Buddhist sutras. They sound so utterly non-Western in terms of how they encourage people to deal with suffering and pain. And uh, by translating those and bringing those forward, for me, I guess uh, if I had an epitaph of my work, I'd like to say that somehow um, I helped bring ancient wisdom to a postmodern world because I don't think we have to reinvent the wheel. I think it's all there, <laughs> including in our own Western sources if we dig deep enough. So that just really excites me. I'm, I'm curious about the content of it. In other words, you, you talked about these universal universal structures and the the pillars that you came up with so normally we would say that that that, that ideas and practices may have a cultural basis so what you've discovered is something very universal that you said is applicable in all of these different ways and I, what i'm curious about is when you take the questions themselves to members of different cultures, do you tend to find different patterns based on those cultures? Or are you finding that the results are universals also? Interesting, yeah, great question. So, so I would say for the most part, um, I have found that the core teachings, when I, when I take the original, um, say Ars Moriendi teaching uh, from the Celtic, and I present it and we translate it into Japanese, or Thai, or you know, you name you name the language. Um, that it it just resonates. It hits deeply. Um, I, I remember being in, in Tokyo teaching this course for a couple of years, and there was an old man sitting in the back of the room who was very very uh, contemplative. Kept his eyes closed. I thought maybe he was asleep during the during the presentations. And, and come to find out, he was part of a lineage of the samurai tradition. And uh, when the course was over, he asked if he could come forward and share something. And I had been sharing a teaching with the class from this, this 11th century wisdom. And I, and I said, I, I need you as Japanese from this culture to tell me whether this makes sense or does this sound too foreign or alien or does it have to be translated? And the, the teaching that, that I was lifting up was this. I'll, I'll give it to you now in English. May you have the commitment to know what has hurt you, to allow it to come closer to you, and in the end, to become one with you. 
So, so this was an instruction, an 11th century instruction, not to the person who was sick, but to the healer. This was an instruction to one who dared to enter into the circle of another suffering. And it was an invitation that you really would not be able to do that kind of soul work unless you first were in touch profoundly uh, with your own suffering. This is very, ultimately, very, very Celtic. The only way out is through. It's never around. It's never, never to narcoticize it or spiritualize it. So that was the teaching we were working with. And I remember that particular day, uh, we were there with translators. So they were, you know, doing their great work of translation that Japanese are very, oh, they were so mm, precise. I, I just appreciated. They wanted to make sure they got every nuance of this correctly. And then this old man, Samurai, through another person, asked if he could come forward. And, and the translator told me that you should really listen to this man. He's one of our national treasures. He's a revered person. Well, of course, you know. So, so, so he came forward and very, very humbly, uh, he was in his, uh, uh, his uh, um, uh, religious outfit, uh, garb. And he closed his eyes and he went into this almost other state of consciousness. And he began to chant in, in Japanese. And they told me it was old Japanese, even not even understood maybe by modern Japanese people necessarily. And when you heard the notes and you watched the energy, you just wept. It was impossible not to weep. You felt like, it was like darshan. You know, you're, you're in the presence of something just extremely um, transparent. And when it was over, he opened his eyes he came over, he bowed down, he took my hand and he kissed it. And he said, Anam Kara. Hmm. Anam Kara. That was everything. Yeah. I've had similar things happen in India teaching this course. I it, it just it it just is amazing to me. I thought, wow, are we getting back to some kind of proto-language? of the soul <clears throat> that, um, and is that maybe, maybe it was lost for a long time and maybe in our time, like Campbell said, you know, it's a time for its renaissance. It's, it's showing up now because we need it. Um, and the thing about it, it doesn't replace any other wisdom tradition. It really doesn't. It would probably be similar to any mystical tradition in the world, to be honest. But, <laughs> It's amazing that I've had um, rabbis and roshis and you name it who have been part of this course of study who have said, oh yeah, you're just, you're just naming something here that, that gets to the essence of what would be the foundation of what our healing practices would sit on. And then the individual practices might be different because of cultural. For example, I found out in Japan that one of the practices from Anamkara is to look in the eyes of another person. Well, I was at a university in Tokyo and the students would not look, they started laughing. And they told me that in this culture, you can't do that. Uh, similar to Native American culture, um, it's disrespectful. So there had to be a way of translating that particular tool with a cultural filter. But underneath it, 
the, the foundation of it, I think, seems to me to be as universal as anything else I've found. So That is absolutely beautiful, Richard. And a, a good spot for us to stop now because we have so much more to explore in our upcoming sessions. So, Richard Groves, I want to thank you for part one. Thank you for being with us. You're welcome. And thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you're a very spiritual person who just needs a little help clearing away what's been holding you back through some relatively quick healing techniques, get on my calendar for a free call. Go to healwithbob.com. This has been Healing and Spirituality in World Cultures with Robert Vetter. Thanks for listening. Please rate, subscribe, and share with everyone you know who might benefit from these messages. Until next time, remember, be kind and loving to yourself and others. Together, we can heal ourselves and help build a better world.